Private and Large, I'm Lit Opate. Ever since Ronald Reagan labeled government a dangerous threat, privatization has touched every aspect of our lives, from water supplies and trash collection to the justice system and the military. We're told repeatedly that bureaucracies can't beat the private sector when it comes to quality and efficiency. Donald Cohn, the founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization In the Public Interest, contends that the decades-long trend of privatizing public services in the U.S. has been a disaster for the average citizen, with private businesses making huge profits by overcharging for much-needed services, and that the public has found that programs it wants or needs have been reduced or even eliminated. Donald Cohn has co-authored a new book with Alan Michaelian called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. It's published by the New Press, and it brings Donald Cohn to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. You, you open your book with a recent example of the limits of privatization. What was the approach to containing COVID-19 that Mike Pence announced in, in March 2020? Well, uh, Mike Pence and his uh, running mate, Donald Trump, um, decided at the beginning of COVID that the market should take care of responding and addressing COVID. Um, And, you know, basically what that translated to is uh, states, you know, states were on their own to try to figure out how to get, you know, PPE, protective equipment, how to get COVID tests. Um, That caused bidding wars and profiteering and gouging, price gouging. But really, in the end, it cost lives. It promised that Google would provide a nationwide triage website and companies like CVS, Target and Walmart would organize drive through testing in their parking lots. Did those things actually happen? No, they did not happen. Um, you know, you know, this was where we had a presidency that made claims that didn't were didn't always uh, line up with the truth. Uh, no, they didn't happen. I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, CVSs and drugstores were able to do testing. Google didn't play a role at all. You know, um, but really, this was saying someone else is going to take care of this. The market comes to your, re- you know, will come to your rescue. And it, you know, it, as we well now know, that this was an incredible uh, disaster. It created a. It helped to push the crisis forward, lose lives, you know, and what, you know, it's, and it's worth noting what ultimately, you know, since it, it was clear that it was not working well, to say the least, um, that Operation Warp Speed was put together that began a level of government coordination for testing uh, and a little bit for contract tracing, but not enough, you know, that started to put us on the right track. Without government coordination, without government involvement, uh, you know, there was no way this we, we could have gotten a handle on this. And it also led to states having to bid against each other for the necessary protective equipment. That's exactly right. It was, I mean, even, you know, your former governor, uh, huh. Cuomo, is, you know, on TV every night saying, listen, this is nuts. We have to we have to make sure we can get the stuff and we don't want to be bidding against Oregon or California and paying more than we need to pay. Prices were going up um, for just the basics that we need to, to, you know, to respond to what was clearly a public health crisis. So let's back up a bit. How would you define privatization? Is it simply the outsourcing of a good or service to a private company? No, it's not. It's, we have a, I have a broader definition. So it's how I just define it very specifically is private control over public goods. And by that, I mean the things that we need together, that we have to do together. Um, 
uh, you know, like keep people healthy, like educate every child, like stuff, like like uh, deal with air pollution and climate change, with a whole set of things. Um, and that private is, you know, the, the privatization that way comes about through different mechanisms. One is out, you know, selling off uh, a water system or uh, contracting with a private prison company to run the prison or, you know, we can, you know, we can make a pretty long list there. But it also includes when the when public agencies don't have the resources because of tax cutting or other reasons to, to provide something that we know everybody needs and should and, and needs to be paid for. And we, need to make sure, and we need to make sure everybody can get it without regard for income. If we don't have those resources in our public institutions and government agencies, then people are left on their own in the market. I mean, child care is a fully privatized public good. Every family needs it. But, you know, you're left as a parent in the market to try to figure out how to afford it. But doesn't it make sense for a city or a state to hire contractors to build a road, for example? Absolutely. No question about that. You know, we should. But can you know, those contractors be held accountable by public managers? Absolutely. That's what I. So you know, the alter, the opposite of private control over public goods is public control over public goods. That does not mean that the public agencies do everything. So it does mean they control it. If it, it, the roads, you know, are central, you know, essential for our mobility and our transportation system, we have to make sure they serve the public, and that means good contracting practices. That means a lot, you know, high quality and rigorous oversight, uh, a, a good financial analysis. It means good government and good management. Without that, you know, bad things happen. Is that what's called a public-private partnership? In part. Um, because in those cases, who owns and controls the finished product, the, the public or the private? Well, that's right. Public-private partnerships is a broad term. And, it, you know, essentially... I'll, I'll answer it a couple of ways. Every every uh, infrastructure project is because they're built by, you know, uh, by private interests, by private companies. But mostly what folks are talking about when they talk about P3s, I'll say for short, public-private partnerships, is when we use private ca investment capital instead of public municipal bonding and debt to pay f to pay for it, to, you know, to 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 pay for the, the construction of the asset. And then when we do that, we also then give them control of the asset for 40, 50, 60. There's a 99-year deal in, uh, in Colorado. So essentially, well, we'll still technically own it, the public. Um, we've given them control for decades where they get to decide lots of things that we ought to be able to decide. Are public goods limited to things the free market can't profit from? Uh, absolutely not. Um, there are people, economists and the economics textbooks that say, you know, uh, government's role is to step in when markets fail. Now, that gives control of the markets to determine what we get and who gets it and how much it costs. And we believe and I believe that we ought to be able to decide those things democratically. Right. So. Um, we ought to be able to decide that every person in America should have health care, regardless of income, status or, or what have you, that everybody should every kid should be able to go to college. We can decide those things and should decide those things. The other thing I would say is the market. You know, um, there are market things and there are public things. And I believe that there are simply things that uh, are what I call are market inappropriate. It's the wrong tool to use to make sure everybody can get health care. Because, you know, markets rely on people with, you know, consumers with, you know, with resources to buy their stuff. Well, and in so most countries, 
In most yep. countries, is a national health service. We are one of the rarities uh, of, of among the, the the major industrial nations. It's a crime. I mean, I was just, I was in Toronto fairly recently with friends, and I was asking about, you know, do you have to like copays or do you have to pay? They didn't even understand my questions. No, we just go to the doctor. Um, there is no financial reason, economic reason, moral reason that it should that you should get more health care if you have more money, less health care if you have le- less health care and lower quality if you have less money. It's just a national crime. Something that all of us have to deal with on a regular basis, except I guess some of my more affluent listeners. Um, I often hear people say that they want the government to be run like a business. Is there a flaw in their reasoning? Yes, but it's I think it's the wrong. You know, I've heard that for decades. So I think we want governments to be managed well. Right. That's really important. Tax money is, you know, is limited. We need to be you know, this is the public trust that we are handing to public agencies to, you know, to, to do things for all of us. So do we want high quality management? Yes. Or might there be management techniques in private enterprise that could, we could steal and use? Yes. But to run it like a business means that we're going to focus. We're going to say the people who use public services are our customers. Right. And they number one. Number two is they need to pay for the, what they consume or what they what the service they use. Now, we do have to pay for the services we use. But if you turn a public service, pay the payment of a public basic public service from, you know, paid through taxes and general revenues into a fee based, then we're saying that's how that's how a business would run and the profitable ones would succeed. But the problem is that when you turn a, a public basic public service like water, which we do pay as a commodity and other things, then you get inequality. You get people who can't afford it and you sort of fail the basic public purpose of being able to provide the essentials for everybody equally. Well, when we're paying a toll, for example, at a tunnel or a bridge, aren't we doing something with government that we would also do with private enterprise? Yes, absolutely. Um, so um, it's just a question of how much, right? There's two questions there. One is how much. If you a tunnel, um, you take you know, um, typically what you what you know what would be done is you would uh, secure public debt to build or you know renovate or fix the tunnel, right? And that public debt's pretty cheap, you know, municipal debt, tax you know, tax exempt municipal debt. Um, if you did it for the private sector, you're paying. Uh, you know, ca- private capital is relatively expensive, 8%, 9%, 10%. You know, re- you know, investors want real returns. So the first step there is we're paying more. Um, the second question would be is, okay, well, we also have the need to make sure that people can get where they want to go. Um, and you can, I don't know if it's, if it's, I don't, we don't have a lot of tolls in California, actually, but you could theoretically create a system of tolling that gives that that shares the burden a little bit more. In other words, you could keep the tolls down if you use some general tax money. And why would you want to keep the tolls down? It's because people who don't have a lot of money, who have less money and need to get to work can afford them. And so you might be able to deal with the affordability crisis, you know, affordability issues and make payment, uh, you know, funding of these things a little bit more progressive. With the private sector, you can't, you know, they, they, you know, they, the private sector does one thing. They want to generate returns. It's real simple. Well, we have seen the, the, uh, the costs of tolls 
uh, go up and, and down, but up a lot recently in, in New Jersey, for example, where it used to be pretty inexpensive to drive. Uh, but um, it, we have a whole system here in New York uh, that, that involves paying the government for yeah. going across bridges or going through tunnels. Yeah, I, I have or few going on, on, on certain highways. Well, a few years back, I, um, I drove across the Verrazano Bridge and was somewhat shocked at the cost mm-hmm. of, of the toll. Um, you know, I'll say a couple of things. One is the bottom line. We do have to pay for things. Right. That's a, you know, it, I, it's sort of a basic fact, the things that we value, the things that we use. And then the, the only two questions is how we pay. Mm-hmm. Right. Do we move towards paying towards tolls, you know, putting the cost on the individual user? Um, or do we move towards either a combination, move in the, in the other direction of the continuum towards paying uh, through tax revenue, where we all share the burden, and we share the cost and we share the burden, right? Um, the, the, and then you could do something in the middle, of course. The important thing about paying through taxes versus paying a, you know, at just user fees is that it, it, it Im- embeds in, in that idea, in that payment structure, the idea that we're, we all, it's in all of our interest for people to be able to move around, you know, the region for, you know, for businesses to move, for people to go to work, for all that. It's in all of our interest, not just the, you know, the person, the, the person, on, you know, in their car going to work. We need everybody to be able to, to get, a, to get places. That's a public good. Mobility, in my view, is a public good because we all need it and we all need that everybody needs it. We all need everyone to need it, to, to have it. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Donald Cohn, the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, uh, a national research and policy center that studies public goods and services. Uh, he has co-authored with journalist Alan Mikaelian a new book called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. You mentioned prisons. One of the sectors you highlight in this book is the prison system. How many prisoners are currently being held in private prisons? Um, well, the state and the federal, I don't know if I have the latest numbers, but, you know, it was at the state level, I think it was about, I mean, actually nationally, it was about 10 to to 13 percent, something like that. So not the majority. There are, uh, you know, I I haven't looked in a couple of years about the exact numbers. What's interesting about I mean, there's many things to talk about in terms of private prisons. But, you know, one of the interesting things, though, is that they are, you know, there's two huge, you know, very large publicly traded private prison companies that, you know, that own some own some prisons and operate, operate them and then operate others that they don't own. And, you know, they are a significant political force in which, uh, and you know, with spending large amounts with lobbying and other stuff. And it's well, and um, lobbying for things like punitive criminal justice policies. Uh, that's what the Corrections Corporation of America does quite effectively, doesn't it? Well, well exactly. And I, I, I want to make the real clear point about this. So they're a company. What they do is they sell one thing in terms of the prisons, because they're also diversifying into other aspects of criminal justice. But in terms of prisons, they sell one thing, heads and beds. So when they look at their, when they file their annual reports to the to the Securities and Exchange Commission, because they're a publicly traded company, they, may, they have a long list of the things that could impact negatively their bottom line. And essentially, and what those are, and I'll, I'll read one of their risks is, it, you know, 
their revenues and their and their uh, um, you know their success could be at in, in quote quoting could be adversely affected by changes in existing criminal or immigration laws, reduction in crime, mm. cha- decriminalization of drugs, change in immigration laws. So what that means is two things. One is it's in their interest to keep heads in beds. It's in our interest to put to take heads out of beds to reduce criminal, you know, to, re- to reduce populations. And as a, uh, you know, and as of their fiduciary responsibility to their investors, they can't they have to be involved logically in any policy that could, in fact, impact occupancy of these things. Are, of these most, prisons. are most immigrant detainees in for profit prisons? Yeah, they are. I, I can't recall the numbers, but the, there, there it's the majority. So uh, how does it work? Uh, Aren't prisons labor intensive operations? Can can (laughs) money be saved by cutting back on staff costs and training? Uh, Yes. In fact, for any private company that says they're going to be more efficient, what they can cut back on are the number of workers, the wages and benefits of workers, um, the, the equipment they use, the staffing ratios, which is also the number of workers, um, you know, very few things. And so, yes, that's exactly what private prison companies do. They do, uh, you know, reduced wages and benefits and sometimes pretty low. That translates to high turnover, high, more violent prisons, bad things that happen there. Um, another thing that happens is they can reduce uh, ratios, uh, inmate to corrections office ratios, which they do. There was a juvenile facility in um in Mississippi, I believe, that went from 1 to 12 to 1 to 60. Hmm. Well, don't many prison contracts guarantee that the companies will get paid for every available bed, whether or not there are prisoners in those beds? Yeah, we did a... a those are called occupancy guarantees? Yep. But yeah, we call them occupancy guarantees or we call them bed guarantees. That's just our name. And yes, yeah, so the contracts and we, did, uh, we uh, got contracts from the majority of state level private prison contracts a few years back, two thirds of them had bed guarantees of 80, 90, some had a hundred percent. And what that means, you know, it was real simple there, you know, it's in their interest to keep heads in beds. Right. As I said, um, they, we have to pay them regardless. So let's say the occupancy went down, but we're still paying them. Okay. And they're saying that those are resources that we could use for mental health, for, uh, you know, for adult education, for all sorts of things. So, you know, one is they use their political pressure to make sure their beds are filled. Right. Um, and they uh, extract resources for profits for very high executive compensation mm-hmm. and other things. Uh, that could be used for, you know, for important things. You know, the, our prison system in America is fundamentally the country's mental health system. So what happened when a company called Judicial Correction Services offered to run the probation services in Greenwood, Mississippi at no charge? Wasn't that a good thing? <laughs> um, and and no. since the town wasn't paying for their services, who was? Well, there's there's only one place you could get that kind of money, and that is from the probationers, you know, so they charge fees to, you know, you know, this is a probation, a private probation officer supervising, um, you know, a pro- someone under probation. Um, so they got to get paid. Where could they get paid? They can get paid for fees. So a monthly fee uh, up uh, 
uh, what's the upsell them <laughs> mandatory upselling, which means making them get drug tests that they that they're actually not required to get. Um, you know, sort of things like that. So adding fees on fees, and then when they can't pay, you know, then they then they have fines on top of the fees to, because they're behind on their payment. So it's essentially exactly what happened. So the town, ten percent of the town. This town with a population of $15,000 found themselves on probation within less of a year. Yeah. And they were yeah. all in debt to the corporation as a result? Yeah, it's exactly what happens. They just, you know, that's, that's, that's what happens. There's, you know, things have to be paid. I keep going back to the simple solution. So sorry for the repetition, but they have to get paid. There's only, you know, there's very limited places where they can get paid from. All that trickles down to people. I mean, you know, only in the end, it's people that have to pay for things. And if we're not paying for it, then individuals are paying for it. In this case, you know, the most vulnerable, the least politically powerful are paying for it. To, you, know, you know, people who are coming out of the criminal, you know, out of prison. Well, in one of his first acts as president, Joe Biden signed an executive order that phased out the use of federal private prisons. Um, how effective has that been? You know, I, I, I don't honestly I don't know. We, you know, we were happy about it. Um, President Obama did that in his last year, I believe. And then, of course, uh, it was overturned. Um, and so it takes a while. And this, this is an interesting point. It takes a while to phase something out because contracts have different terms, right? Three years, four years, two years, whatever they are. They're typically in prisons. They're probably more like three to five year, year contracts. So you can't abrogate a contract in the middle of a contract. That's part of the problem of contracting out or private or outsourcing. Contracts are rigid documents. So we are, you know, sort of, you know, so it will take some time to, to phase those out based on the on the, you know, the, the expiration dates of the contracts, which I, which I haven't looked at in detail recently. What are the options available to cities whose water systems are on the brink of collapse structurally and financially? Wouldn't the most logical solution be to simply raise taxes or to issue a municipal bond? Uh, but haven't many U.S. cities sold their public water systems to for for-profit corporations? Yeah, they have. Um, are there short-term sold, advantages? Well, no. I mean, because in the end, things cost money. So you know what happens is is you know we we're, we're uh, you know, we have a water you know, system crisis in America. We've been paying for our water systems by not fixing them, right? And so that's critical. So what do we need to do? We need a massive federal infusion because you can't, you, you know, because we just need to go far and fast. If we rely on individual payment and consumer, you know, use of the water system, which we all do, you know, there are towns can't do that. Flint could never solve its problem on its own if it was going to charge its ratepayers. It's just not possible. So when you hand it over to a private company, you know, they're not going to do things for cheap or for free <laughs> or, or, you know, they're not going to lose money on it. What do they do? They immediately start raising rates. Do they assume the financial burden of upgrading aging water infrastructure? Well, that's usually that's often part of the deal, right? They say, okay, we'll do a public-private partnership, and we will upgrade the system. And sometimes they'll and sometimes they'll say, we'll give the agency, the city, let's say, you know, Allentown, I think, was looking at this a few years back. We'll give the city a bunch of money up front, um, to, you know, for the water, you know, for for us to be able to take over the water system for multiple decades. All right, you can use that money to solve your fiscal crisis, which we know you're in. We'll use that money to fix it. But also then operate it and maintain it and charge user fees to be able to you know to consume the water. 
So that's, you know, it's, it's that simple. And their only way they'll do that is by charging enough for, you know, per gallon or, or per liter um, to be able to make a, a, you know, a healthy return for their investors and all of their business expenses. And is that and, what happened uh, in, in Apple Valley, California, during droughts in California? Don't most residents cut back on their water use? Uh, they and, do. So and, and instead of being rewarded for their good citizenship with lower water bills, uh, the uh, the water the private water supplier in Apple Valley charged higher rates to residents who use less water during a drought. It's exactly right. And if you look at, you know, I read you the little section or reference the section in the prison, you know, 10K, the SEC filing in water companies, uh, you know, pu- publicly traded water companies, they say conservation could hurt them financially because, you know, again, they sell water. They have to maintain a system. They have to, you know, first they have to maintain the system. Two, they have to maintain rates of return for their investors. That's what their real job is. They they're beholden to, to the, to their shareholders, and so if consum- if volume goes down, then co- then cost per unit has to go up. Pretty sim- pretty simple. Well, when the public complains about poor service or rate hikes, can a city regain control of its water system? Uh, yeah, and then, what, and what do the have. courts tend to do? Do they tend to side with the cities and allow them to claim eminent domain? Well, it's not. I mean, I don't know if there are cases where it's been eminent domain. Domain has been used for this, but there have been a number of remunicipalizations where you know where cities said this is not working and they just don't renew the contract so that's the first step um or or there are um uh, clauses in the contract that allow them to terminate without without penalty you know atlanta brought their their uh, their water back in and then a bunch of small cities and, and all over the country you know but there are there have been you know but what does happen when the company resists like happened in Montana, you know, then the city or the municipality or, or, you know, the jurisdiction goes through years of litigation um, to try to get something back that's just theirs. It's another cost, right? Where, you know, we get, you know, contracts, again, I'll, I'll repeat, contracts are rigid documents. There is so much contract litigation in America because of, you know, failure to really anticipate anything that could happen in the future, vague, you know, unclear, you know, clauses that, that are subject to interpretation. And so when we go into a when public goes into contract with private, there are many cases there are litigation costs that come about. You write about the Indiana toll road. Wasn't it publicly financed and constructed during the 1950s? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Wouldn't the state have considered raising the tolls to pay for repairs and improvements? Why uh, instead did it lease the toll road in 2006 in exchange for the right to maintain, operate, and collect tolls? Well, I'd say there's a couple of reasons. One is ideological, right? There's a conservative effort that, you know, that we want to privatize and outsource and, you know, sell up as much as possible. And the governor of Indiana then was Mike Pence, was it, he? Well, no, I think at the first when it happened was Daniels and then Pence came in a little bit later, if I think I have the, the calendar right. But Pence played a role in this, a, a quite a negative role in the in the saga that was the Indiana toll road. Um, but so often there's sort of an ideological predilection, number one. Number two is um, they um, they believe, the, the decision makers, you know, the governor in that case, believes that they are outsourcing the pain of increasing tolls from voters. <laughs> They're not, but they believe that. So they go, okay, well, you know, a private company, a private investor comes in and says, listen, no new taxes, we'll take this headache off your hand. 
um, and cheaper, better, faster, by the way. Right. So um, that, you know, that sort of mix of things is is why folks do it. Now, it's, you know, it's selling snake oil because in the end, you got to pay for the road. <laughs> it's like no question. Yeah. But why do you want to give it? You know, so a company, you know, this is a these are global corporations. Again, give the state up front a bunch of, uh, you know, a, a, a large amount of money. The state gets that money and can use it for thinks they can use it for other things. The companies or the consortium, it usually is, gets control of the road for, you know, for decades. Um, now, they've based their pro formas and their, you know, internal financial plans, the company, on certain traffic projections. Well, when, when, the, when the consortium raised tolls, something the state hadn't done, didn't truckers begin to just take other roads? And since those other side roads weren't designed to handle heavy truck traffic, uh, wasn't the state uh, forced to incur substantial maintenance costs? Well, yes, that's exactly my point. So that, that, that's, that, that's exactly right. When, when rates go up, people look for other ways. So the traffic projections didn't pan out. So two things happened. Ultimately, that com- that, you know that consortium went out of business, went bankrupt. But also the you know truckers you know trying to save money. Of course, they go to the they go to the side roads, which puts the burden of repair and maintenance on the, the, the side roads or the or, or the competing roads. But there's another point to rate here, and I don't remember if it was specifically in this deal. There are non in these public private partnerships for major transportation projects. There are non compete clauses, which prevent the public from doing too much upgrading of a competing uh, road or transit <laughs> system that would impact the revenues of the company. And getting back to Mike Pence, when the consortium that operated the toll road declared bankruptcy, uh, he didn't return the road to the public. So he who profited the, from his decision? Well, uh, it, there's a mystery there to be, to be kind of candid. So he, he was able to do that. The contract allowed him or the legislation allowed him to do that. He said, no, he's an ideological conservative private sector. Second is there were two counties, public agencies said, we'll put together a bid. We think this should be public con- con- publicly controlled. And um, th- he rejected that. Um, then another, the next private consortium came in and actually offered more money which is sort of totally bewildering, and I think we write about this in the book, is they offered more money for a road that went bankrupt for less money. Where do they think their get money is going to come from? And, you know, it, I mean, I assume it's going mean, to, maybe they're going to uh, add more concessions. Maybe they're going to uh, figure out other investments nearby. I, you know, honestly, don't know. But the, toll, but the tolls went way up, and that's going to go. And that—that's the basic fact: is the tolls will go up and up and up. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety-nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. to find songs about privatization. So we did a pun there, private eyes. Um, before I get back to my conversation with Donald Cohn, I thought you should know that anyone who signs up with a one-time contribution of $75 or more to become a member of WBAI during today's show will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back by Donald Cohen, the, the founder of In the Public Interest. 
but please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. Again, that's give to WBAI.org online or call 212-209-2950. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you very much. Um, Getting back to what we've been discussing, one particularly egregious example you write about took place in Chicago. Why, why did the city contract out 75 years of city parking revenue to private investors? Well, this is, um, you know, th- this is the worst deal of the century, um, and, but, but illustrative um, in many ways for every other deal. So in 2009, you know, remember, that was, a t- that was financially a terrible time for all of us and for cities, bleeding red ink. Um, on a Friday, uh, Mayor Daley at the time uh, announced a proposal from a consortium, again, Morgan Stanley, a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East and a national parking company. And they said, we'll give the city $1.1 billion today up front hmm. in exchange for the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. Vote on Tuesday. <laughs> so there's very little uh, scrutiny of the deal. They did. Um Here's what became true after the after the fact and after there was some analysis and understanding of the what the what the fine print of the contract. First thing, financially incredibly stupid to borrow on your 75 years of future parking meter revenues, you know, because who knows if we'll be driving, even if that was the only option out of a long list of horrible options. They sold a billion dollars too cheaply. They got taken by Wall Street. But that's not the most important. The most important is now for the for the duration of the contract. So now for the remaining 60 some odd years, if the city wants to take any number of actions that eliminate spots, such as uh, bus rapid transit, you know, to get more people in buses or bike lanes or closing off an entire street for a street mall and change land use patterns or even just, you know, one street fair. Yeah, for a street fair for the weekend, any one of these things. They have to buy the spots back at the full value of the spot for the, you know, for the, for the life cycle of this uh, 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 of the contract. It's expensive. So, uh, uh, you know, a um, so that means tr- city responsibilities such as transit, land use, housing, climate, their, their role in climate, you know, in solving climate change, any number of fundamental municipal responsibilities the the elected representatives, the mayor and city council's hands are tied. And what I say, that's that, that's the worst part of privatization is the assault on democracy, our ability to make decisions about what we need and to be able to change, you know, res- to, and to respond to to changing circumstances. Well, the deal was finalized, as you say, by then Mayor Daley in 2008. Uh, has anyone tried to reverse the deal or could is this something that could be uh, <laughs> decided by the courts? No, um, the deal's a deal. Uh, Mayor Emanuel did renegotiate the deal, but essentially all they did was, I think, eliminated, if I may get this wrong, they extended parking uh, hours, paid parking hours to into the evening, later into the evening, and they removed parking hours for Sunday so people could go to church. It was close to something like that. But other than that, a deal's a deal. There's nothing illegal about this deal. 
Um, and so, no, that's the problem, the rigidity of these contracts. I, I can give you another example that's more recent and that's more, you know, about, that relates to COVID, um, if, if, if you want. Sure. Um, universities are now starting to do public-private partnerships for their dorms, right? Have a private company or consortium, you know, even build new dorms, you know, um, upgrade them, manage them, update, uh, upgrade them, all the above. So uh, a few universities have done this. I don't have the full list, but I know Georgia State did um, and Wayne State did and, and Howard University did, I know. So the, the Georgia, the university started or wanted, wanted to start bringing back students during COVID. First, you know, they shut down the dorms and the schools. Now they're starting working towards bringing back the kids. Um, but they didn't want it at full occupancy. They wanted, you know, from a public health perspective, they wanted fewer, you know, students in the dorm for social distancing. They received a letter from the company, and that said, I will read specifically. The letter include, included a following sentence: "The university does not have the unilateral right under the agreement to institute a policy that would limit the number of students who can occupy the student housing." Hmm. So that's, I mean. University responsible for the health of this of the student body has signed away their ability to carry out their responsibility. Wow. And that, it seems to me that you mentioned a number of different universities that would cover a, a, a certain spectrum of um, the population, and not all in southern conservative situations. No, not at all. Wayne State's in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I mean, Georgia State's Howard. in the South. But yeah, Howard's in D.C. Uh, yeah, exactly. So there's no there, I mean, I don't again, it, you know, you see uh, the University of California system was looking into this. I don't know yet if they've implemented it, um, but there's a lot of universities because, you know, I always try to put my head in the, you know, think about the perspective of the chancellor, the, the head of the university mm -hmm. saying, why do they do this? Short term fix? This, pardon me? Is it a short term fix? No, that, well, it, it, it's not in that probably in their minds, it's a one less headache. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a landlord. <laughs> I want to run a university. So I try to understand that there may be some the motivations may not be all you know, nefarious. In this case, it's oh. And then the companies come in and say cheaper, better, faster, all better. So, you know, so I um, what are what I then try to do is say, OK, let's get let's get to the, the hard questions here. <laughs> Who's going to pay? What control do you have? What flexibility do you have to change, you know, to respond to changing circumstances? Those are always the decisions that, the, the, you know, the, the conversations that need to be infused into all these decisions. Now, we've, you mentioned Georgia. Why did the state of Georgia allow its own legal code to be privatized? Um, that's a, quite a story. So, there's there's a, there's two legal codes, you know, official legal codes. One is the official legal code. And then there's one called the official code of the state of Georgia, something like that annotated. The annotated one is the only one that's accurate. Right. Because it gets all the updates and court cases and things like, you know, respond, you know, results of court cases and things like that. So it's costly to do the annotated. So they outsourced that to um, LexisNexis. Mm -hmm. the, the state did. OK, let them do it. OK, so what what's the impact of that? Two things, uh, two important things. One is that what, what we all should believe should be free. Anybody should be able to look up what law is. That seems just logical um, in a democracy. Um, but now you have to pay. 
because LexisNexis has it. And it's pretty expensive. I think it was three or $400 for, you know, for online and a lot more for if you want a you know, copy of a CD. And, you know, and then you would have to do that multiple times. So they turned a public, public information into a private commodity. Hmm. Now, what they also did was they gave LexisNexis the copyright. So now you've turned public information into privately protected <laughs> confidential information that you can only get if you pay for it. Now, the good news is that, you know, because of advocates, a, a, a guy, somebody with a, you know, a public interest organization just released the stuff and got sued and there was a set of lawsuits and all that. Ultimately, the state had to back down. But this was, but this, you know, again, these are illustrative, these are illustrative, right? But is, is that a rarity, uh, cases where voters took back control of privatized services? Well, I mean, with water, not at all, right? Um, you know, there's a bunch of places. I mean, and then in Baltimore, it, they didn't take it back, but they, the voters said, we will, we never want this to happen. Um, I'll give you an example of, for broadband. Um, you know, now it's clear broadband, access to the internet is, is as important as the roads, right? I think we're all clear about that. Um, a number of the, the large telecoms are going around the country to prevent cities from creating, you know, from establishing municipal public broadband. And they're, you know, they're doing preemption, you know, passing preemption laws. So in Colorado, they did, you know, they did that. The telecoms got this law passed, but they gave a sort of what I call a pro-public loophole, something that's good for us. And that is, they allowed cities, if they want, they could vote to, to create public broadband. So they, they, gave, they still gave that option to the cities, to, you know, to, to the voters. And in virtually every or perhaps every place where that happened, in Fort Collins and Loveland, I think in Denver even, uh, the votes were overwhelmingly to, uh, to establish public broadband. So people are ready to, you know, people get what, that, what we should all have. My guest is Donald Cohn, who is co-author with Alan Michaelian of a new book called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. It's from the New Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. Those who advocate for privatization ask us to evaluate pub policy decisions as consumers rather than as citizens. Um, is that... Uh, how, how political is all of this? I mean, it, do, do we uh, – some of the, the, the things that you discussed uh, were uh, deals made by Democrats. So we can't just simply say this is a, a Republican thing. Yeah, um, well, that's absolutely true. So political – Like the Barack Obama presidential library, which we'll get to in a moment. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, so – I mean, there's a lot to say. Yes, this is a bipartisan effort. Let's just, you know, we can describe it that way to privatize things. Um, now, people believe that Ronald Reagan was the, you know, was the, the you know, our main private, you know, our, the first privatizing president. But in fact, that's not true because he tried but failed to privatize significant things. Bill Clinton came in and actually sort of unleashed the privatization push in many ways. You know, TANF, the welfare reform law, was a was the most it was a embedded in the laws the ability to privatize uh, big pieces of welfare in the country. So Clinton was the you know was implementing Reagan's you know, ideas, and that's because Clinton was a conservative, a conservative Democrat, believed in markets and you know a neoliberal as um, people say. So um, so. Um, you know, it's it, the um, 
And, you know, even to today, the infrastructure bill I was just looking at before. Now, it, you know, these are all negotiated, right, because of the, the thin margins. The, you know, the, the infrastructure bill that, that um, President Biden uh, signed has some incentives to privatize infrastructure and do deals like park, the parking meter. Now, hopefully they'll be better like in Chicago. Hopefully there'll be better deals. Um, but uh, this is not something that's just one size fit all, fits all. It's there's this belief in the markets. There's belief in cheaper, better, faster. We're in a in, we're in a political environment where we're saying no new taxes, which is often said is mm-hmm. when to selling one of these projects, um, is appealing to folks on both sides of the aisle. Um, there's sort of a mythology around business. There's a mythology, you know. Then there's the then on top of a forty year attack on government, um, that you know it's caused a lot of a lot of folks to pursue this that shouldn't. Well, I mentioned Barack Obama a, a moment ago. Our president since FDR had their public records held at presidential libraries that are run by the National Archives and, and Records Administration. And isn't Barack Obama the first president to break with that tradition? What will uh, the the planned Obama Presidential Center uh, in Chicago do that involves privatization? Well, a few things. First, it's in Jackson Park, I believe, which is a public park, which is we talk about the history of the park, and you know, in in the book, nineteen public, acres of of uh, Jackson Park. Yeah, it's a big piece of a public park. So that's number one. Number two is it's not a public facility, right? This is the Obama. I believe it's the, probably the Obama Foundation that runs this. Um, so it's you know it's Obama's library. Okay, it's not the federal government. You know, it's not the archive, National Archives Library. And uh, he um, uh, typically it's the archives, the National Archives that run these libraries to make sure that it's balanced and the information's available and all that. That's not what's that's not what's going to be at that library, what they're going to have stuff from the archives, but then they're going to give it back. So so Obama will get to curate uh, what's in the library now. If you like Obama, that's good. If you don't like Obama, that's bad, right? So I would say from two perspectives, for two perspectives, one is we'd like everybody, Democrats and Republicans, to be able to go in and, and research his administration. But if folks see this as just a Democratic thing, then that limits the number of the people who can who will want to go, you know, who want to use the you know the facilities. Um, and so, uh, and you know, and and. Obviously, in our polarized world, some will say, well, this is just whitewashed America, you know, Obama America. And, you know, others will say the opposite. You know, Nixon tried this and it was purely whitewashed. And then ultimately, you know, it was transferred back to to NARA. As we move beyond the pandemic, crash strapped government uh, governments will need to somehow pay for public goods. How do we encourage them to not move toward privatization? How do we resist this trend toward privatization? Well, I, I think that well, And most, should we? Well, I, you know, I wrote a book that pretty much says we should. Mm. Um, so, um, yes, we should. Now, again, it doesn't mean, I mean, everything's got public and private in it. Let's just be clear. This is, uh, you know, like private builds the road. This is privatization as it mean, resisting privatization means we have control and, and can make decisions about the things that we all need, our basic, good, our basic goods and essential public goods. So how you resist, I mean, of course, you know, people need to work to get, you know, movements create change in, in, all, in all places. But the most important thing that we urge people to do in, 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 at, at the, you know, at, at the level of when they're talking about something specific is 
make sure those hard questions are asked. Who's going to pay in the end? How much are we going to pay in the end? Who, you know, how much money can the private operators make? Can they gouge us? Do they get to set the fees? Are there decisions we might not be, we the public might not be able to make because this contract prevents us from doing it? like bus lanes in Chicago. So what will happen to the wages and benefits of the workers? What are the standards of service in the prisons? If, you know, is it 12 to one or is it 60 to one in terms of inmate to, to, to corrections office ratio? It's absolutely crucial that that happens. Well, we have very few minutes left, but you wrote recently in these times uh, an article uh, headed, Postal Banking is Finally a Reality in Some of the United States. W- didn't we have postal banking in the past? Uh, yeah, we did. Um, and in some and countries, I, I think you could still go to banks in England and some other places, some other countries. Yeah, I believe that's true. I mean, it's an interesting point. To, yes, and we could do it again if we wanted to. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I, you know, I'll raise a, a larger point about that. So we could do that. No question. It would be cheaper. It'd be better. And listen, there's a post office in every community in America that we all go, that many of us go to. I go to frequently um, that could serve. That is our pathway to the federal government and to all sorts of things. It's our you know, entry point. So the banking industry doesn't want this to happen. OK, that's, you know, because they don't want the competition. It's interestingly, the same thing is true with other kinds of public services. The weather system, you know, are, the weather our weather apps on our phones and when we go on, you know, on, you know, when we look online, every piece of data is public data that was created and, you know, it's captured by the National Weather Service. But the private weather companies have prevented the weather, National Weather Service being able to provide consumer, you know, citizen direct, you know, available products. They can't create an app because they don't want the competition. And TurboTax has done the same thing for the IRS to prevent the IRS from being able to create simple online tax filing that you don't have to go through a private entity to do. They don't want the competition. That's what's and that, you know, so we could decide we could we could pay our taxes easier and cheaper. Um, We could do postal banking. We could get, you know, weather service. You know, our weather service could be done cheaper if we're, you know, if we're getting it more directly. Um, we have less ads in our apps. We could do all sorts of things we wanted to if we, we people decide that these things are something we all need. And the public is, you know, in many cases should be able to do it, too. Yeah, well, I could see uh, the banks not liking this idea at all. <laughs> Well, they definitely don't. They tried. I don't know. I don't know what happened but, oh, during COVID that, the you know, the Postal Service, I think, under Trump wanted to then create and do a deal with hmm. Citibank or one of the one of the financial institutions to have them do the banking in the post offices. That's not what we mean. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of ATMs. What we mean is, you know, a postal system that's available to everybody to do their, you know, their their local banking. Donald Cohn is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest, an uh, Oakland, California-based national research and policy center that studies public goods and services. He is co-author with Alan Michaelian of a new book called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. It's published by the New Press. We couldn't get to everything, but um, I think we gave our listeners a pretty good idea of what you're talking about here. 
Yeah, and you know, we and my organization is called In the Public Interest. We have a website with all sorts of information. You can sign up on our email list, and you know, sort of keep in touch with the kind of things that that we do. The book is called The Privatization of Everything because it really does affect pretty much everything that you know surrounds us all the time. You know, we, and we don't cover, we don't get to everything even in the book, but there are important issues here. The most important, and I'll reiterate is the impact on our ability to make decisions around democracy. Thank you again for being on our show. Thanks for having me. This was a great show. And it should, you know, donate to WBAI because we need this kind of radio uh, around the country. Oh, thank you, because I'm going to just ask the audience about all of that. It does bring us to the end of our show. My special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour uh, in-depth, deep-dive interviews, you can access our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere else you can get podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. If you value the kind of informative full-hour deep dives into one subject that we bring you on this show weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to help com keep community radio alive in New York. And um, as I mentioned at the half, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now, will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back by my guest, uh, Donald Cohen, the founder of In the Public Interest. Um, and then... And then there's a whole other, by the way, it's tax deductible. And then there's a whole other matter. Boy, we have so many problems here. Uh, we are asking you to help us uh, pay for our tower rent. We are uh, we're kind of behind uh, in our, our payments there. And if we don't have the, the tower, uh, we really are not going to be on the air. So we hope that you will... Um, Call that number again, 212-209-2950, and make a, uh, a tax-deductible contribution of any amount to help us um, catch up and uh, plan for the future. Our tower rent is about $17,000 a month, whereas our, the other four sister stations here, uh, Pacifica, pay a minimal amount. So... Uh, we're, we're stuck here in New York. Um, meanwhile, um, uh, the, uh, what else I want to say, whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call to 212-209-2950 uh, right now or go online to give to WBAI.org. You know, I've worked over the years at several so-called public radio stations, and although each fundraising model has strengths, the WBAI approach of directly appealing to our listeners for their support as our only revenue source seems to me to be the most democratic and independent way to ensure that the public is a partner in our programming. It allows us to be totally free speech radio, and nobody in management tells me what topics I can or can't do shows about. We hope you can join us again for tomorrow's show when attorney and professor of genetics law at the University of Utah, 
Jorge Contreras will discuss his new book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. We'll see you then.